Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas along with Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. And welcome to another edition of ODWire Radio. And today with us we have Dr. Ken Myers. Hi Ken, how's it going today? Uh, good day, gentlemen. So, Ken, let me just briefly introduce you to the community. Of course, if you're an ODWire member, you already know Ken pretty well since he's a, a regular on the site. Um, so you may or may not know that Ken is actually the Director Emeritus of the Optometry Service of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs um, and also the President of the American Board of Clinical Medical Optometry, ABCMO. So if you were wondering what, what the alphabet soup means, that's what it uh, stands for. Um, today we're actually going to talk to Ken all about optometric residencies in part one, and then on the back side of this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about board certification. I know it's been a rather controversial topic on ODWire, uh, but Ken is obviously an expert. He's had a great deal of experience in the development of these programs. He can give us a little insight as to what board certification really means. So with that said, why don't I kick things off and just sort of talk to you about the history of optometry in the VA. So if you could set the Wayback Machine. You know, fortunately, we have Paul here who can also set the Wayback Machine with you. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> to, to an era, you know, before 1970, before I was even around, and sort of describe what optometry's role was in the VA, you know, from 1970 and before. Well, in 1970, there wasn't really any role for optometry in the VA. Uh, I have to go back maybe a little farther to give you some background. At the time that the Second World War was ending, the VA had about 173 hospitals, and it was it was woefully unprepared to handle all the returning veterans from the Second World War. All the medical staff were civil servants, and none of the VA hospitals had teaching programs with the medical schools. They didn't have teaching programs for nurses, for dentists, for physicians. Everything was done by very poorly paid civil servants. Most of the physicians were, were older. Many of them were part-time. The quality of care was not that good. In 1946, the Congress understood that the VA needed to be totally revamped, expanded, and they passed legislation to create what, what was called the Department of Medicine and Surgery. And they took all the physicians and dentists and nurses, they removed them from the Civil Service Commission and they created an entirely new independent personnel system for physicians, dentists, and nurses. The Congress also required the VA to start teaching programs and to affiliate with all the U.S. medical schools, dental schools, and nursing schools. This was very controversial. The, at that time, the AMA was opposed to it. They thought it was socialized medicine. But over the next 15, 20 years, the VA built more hospitals affiliated with medical, dental, and nursing schools and greatly improved both the quality and the quantity of the care they were delivering. Starting in the 1950s, the American Optometric Association thought that optometry ought to play a role in this. And every now and then, maybe every three or four years, they would manage to get a small piece of legislation added to some other uh, uh, to some other laws that they were drafting. I think back in 1956 was the first time it was legal for the VA to actually re refer a patient to a private practice optometrist. Before that, the VA didn't even know that optometry existed. I think somewhere in the 60s, the law was amended 
to allow the VA to actually hire an optometrist as a civil servant to work in a VA hospital. Finally, in 1973, the Congress uh, passed a law that said the VA should have an optometry program and there should be a director of that program. And that was the job to which I was appointed in 1974. In 1974, optometrists were still under the civil service. They were very poorly paid. In the entire VA system, there were nine optometrists. Those those nine optometrists were basically doing refractions. There was only one ray of hope, and that that was started by Dean Peters at the University of Alabama School of Optometry. In 1973, he had had created a, a teaching affiliation between his College of Optometry at UAB and the Birmingham VA Hospital. And they had, I think, two students rotating there and one young full-time optometrist. It was difficult. The civil service salary was so poor that the university had to supplement the salary that the VA paid because the VA was paying uh, a very low salary. So, Ken, uh, just uh, to, to, to understand the salaries, at what level were optometrists paid? Were they considered professionals or were they considered technicians? And- well, under the Civil Service Commission, there are, there are 16 pay grades, one GS1, Government Service 1, to GS grade 6, to a GS grade 18. I was appointed at a, at a GS 16 grade, which was the equivalent to, uh, which was equivalent, uh, well, in the military, there is, a cor- there is a correspondence between GS grades and the military grades, and the GS-16 grade was equivalent to a one-star general, a, a brigadier general. So I was appointed to a high government grade, but the optometrists were down at GS-9, and there was no way to promote them. It was If you were an optometrist, you were a GS-9, and that was all there was to it, and, and that meant you were being paid equivalent to maybe a second lieutenant, something like that. So there was no career for an optometrist in the VA. You went in as a nine and you could work there for 30 years. You'd not be promoted and you were basically used as a refractionist. Hmm. Wow. So that, and that was the case all the way up until the seventies. That was the case. That was the case in 1974 when I was appointed to be director of optometry. Wow. And how did you actually change that situation? Well, the the law that created my position didn't didn't make any statement as to what the director of optometry was supposed to do. There was no budget. I didn't I didn't have an office. I didn't have a secretary. And when I reported for duty, uh, my boss gave me a copy of the national eyeglass contract and told me that my duty would be to monitor the national eye the national eyeglass contract. And basically, I was supposed to uh, make certain that the VA was getting a good price on their eyeglasses. <laughs> Some job for a general. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the funny thing about it. I was being paid a, a very handsome salary, uh, but I was given no responsibilities. And I was, you know, nobody, most most of the people in headquarters at that time 
were were veterans from World War II, and the VA was a very military system. It was very conscious of rank, and I was pretty much treated like an enlisted man. It was it was it was it was a very strange feeling because there was also wage compression back in those days. At that time, there was a pay cap, which still exists, that no civil servant could be paid more than a certain grade level. And there was only about $800 a year difference between my salary and the salary of, of, of the of the MDs above me. My boss's boss only made $800 a year more than I did. Wow. So uh, taking all that into account and the situation in which you found yourself, how did you actually extricate yourself from this and try to make the system better? Well, I had gone through the accelerated two-year OD degree at the New England College of Optometry, and they were very medically oriented. And the director of the clinics at the time, Charlie Mullen, believed that optometrists should be working in hospitals and medical clinics as well as in private practice. And in those days, that was revolutionary. At that time, New England was the only college of optometry that was rotating students through anything other than a campus optometry clinic. I happened to rotate through the Naval Marine Hospital in Boston, and the New England School also liked to work with ophthalmology to cooperate with them. So my viewpoint from the very beginning was that optometry had a place in medical hospitals, that we should be working with physicians, we should be part of a team. So when I got to the VA and I saw how underutilized optometry was, I, I, I saw it as a tremendous potential for training optometry students and for making eye care in the VA much more cost-effective. They were using ophthalmologists at that time to do everything from repairing eyeglasses to surgery. And they weren't very well staffed. The typical ophthalmology clinic was only part-time, generally staffed by a resident. And, and to be honest, they were basically looking for surgical cases to take back to the medical school. So there was a vast unmet need for eye care other than surgery, and the VA wasn't providing it. I felt that optometry had a had, I felt optometry would round out the team and would take care of all these other other patients. And this dovetailed, I assume, just about when the diagnostic uh, legislation and the therapeutic legislation came into being. So the optometrists could expand their responsibilities. Well, when I was a student, uh, we had Goldman tonometers, and the only time we could use them was when, was when the the ophthalmology uh, uh, person came to our clinic. And I don't think I ever actually did Goldman tonometry while I was a student. I I, I think I saw it, I, I saw it being done. Yes, you knew what a Shiatz tonometer was like, huh? Well, we we had Goldman too, but what we had to do was use what most people have never heard of called the McKay-Marg tonometer. Right. And that was a little gizmo that supposedly didn't require a corneal anesthetic, and you tapped it. It was a it was an indentation tonometer, and you tapped it on the patient's cornea, but it was pretty tricky to do because it, the patient could feel it. Yeah, but I think to this day people are afraid of getting an air puff. Well, that's... <laughs> That's too bad because Bernie Bernie Grohlman, the inventor, uh, came to the New England school and uh, was the first school to have one, and he and he allowed me to do several research studies 
on the NCT and to show that it was accurate. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing device. Yeah. So so basically, it was just about 1974. Then uh, the VA was ready to to pre start a residency program. Was that about no, the time? No, the VA was ready to do nothing for optometry. The VA, the VA testified against the law that created the director of optometry position. The VA had had no idea of using optometry, and as I said, they they thought the only business that I could offer them was to take care of the eyeglass contract. Huh. Was the AOA helpful at all to to support you when you were trying to make changes? Well, about two weeks after I was there, I got a phone call from from Mr. David Danielson, who was from the Washington AOA office. And he had been appointed that summer and he suggested we have lunch. And we had lunch and I told Dave that I couldn't believe how the VA was delivering eye care. It had essentially no optometry program at all, had no interest in one. And I thought it was terrible because there was an obvious need for them and I thought there was a great potential to build an optometry program here. And it took it took Dave with the approval of the AOA. Dave and I worked for two years to get the Congress to draft a new law, which was enacted in 1976. And that law upgraded my position to director of the optometry service and called for the VA to, to start teaching programs with the schools and colleges of optometry and to employ optometrists. During that two-year period, I was not able to hire a single optometrist until that law was passed. And once again, the VA sent people to the Hill and they testified against it. So I was, I was pretty much surrounded in the VA by people who did not want me to be there and did not want, did, did not want optometry to be there either. It was not a very friendly place to work. Right. So, so when did the residency programs actually start? Well, I couldn't hire any optometrist until, in fact, the, the law that was passed in 76, it took another two years for the Congress, with the support of the AOA, nagging them to finally provide a budget. So I couldn't even hire, the first four years I was there, I really couldn't hire an optometrist, even even after the law in 76 was passed. So I had to improvise. So I went out and I looked for friendly ophthalmologists in the VA system that would not, that, that, that would agree to work with optometry. And at that time, during the, the struggle for the, for the DPA bills, there was an, an ophthalmologist at the Kansas, in Kansas city, Dr. Alfred Lemoyne. And Dr. Lemoyne was chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Kansas Medical Center. His father had been the chair before him. He had a private practice, and he had an optometrist, Dave Amos, working at his, at his private clinic. And Dr. Lemoyne thought that ophthalmologists should work with optometrists. Dave Amos was, is the brother of John Amos, the former dean down at the University of Alabama. So Dave called me one day and said, why don't you come out and talk to Dr. Lemoyne? We need some help in the VAI clinic here, and maybe we could do something with optometry. I went there, 
and went over to the VA, and there was a small office about the size of a, a small clinic about the size of a broom closet with a resident that came over from ophthalmology two or three days a week, found interesting surgical cases, and took them back to the medical center. Dr. Lemoyne agreed with me that there was a lot of patients there that needed things other than surgery that were being ignored. And he thought that was the role that optometry could play. The problem was I couldn't hire an optometrist. I didn't have the money. And in 1975, we didn't, we were still under civil service. So, so Dave Amos and Dr. Lemoyne and I over lunch, were trying to figure out how could we do something here. We thought about getting an optometry student and starting a student rotation, but we thought, well, that's going to be awfully hard to do. And they, they really aren't going to learn that much over three months. Somebody ought to be here for a year. And sort of spontaneously, we thought, well, why don't we start a residency program for, for optometry here? And by the end of lunch, we had decided to do the following. Dave Amos would contact ICO and see if they'd be interested in sending a recent graduate there. Dr. Dr. Lemoyne would would go to the VA hospital director and 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 ask for approval to have a residency program there for a resident. And I would go back to headquarters and try to find the money for the resident stipend. The residents are all paid not by the local VA hospital, but from a separate budget in VA headquarters. And, and now here's where I may get myself in trouble because I went back and, and went to the Office of Academic Affairs. That's the branch and headquarters that funds all the residency programs for physicians, dentists, nurses, audiologists, all the other health professions, physical therapists, the VA is the largest trainer of health professions in the world. Their annual budget is hundreds of millions of dollars for stipends. They didn't have one for optometry. There was no such thing in our profession. So I just went to them as if it was a normal thing to do and put in a request for a residency at the Kansas City VA Medical Center. And they didn't do their homework. They didn't realize this was something new and they approved it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, great. Now, that's I learned early on that to get anywhere in a government bureaucracy, there's three kinds of authority. There's legitimate authority where by law you can do something. There's non-legitimate authority. Nobody has said that you can't. And then there's illegitimate that, that said that you can't do it. Well, nobody had said you couldn't have an optometry resident. So I just went in and put in an application. And I said, look, the hospital director there wants this. The chairman of the ophthalmology department wants it. Oh, okay, all right, we'll send the, We'll start the residency there. Well, about three months after this got started, I was called up to the to the uh, chief chief medical officer in the Office of Academic Affairs, and he kind of chewed me out. He said, "You never told us this was something new. You huh? never asked." <laughs> yeah. So. It was, it was, it, it, the next year I, that was the first resident. That first resident was Tom Stelmack from ICO. He went back to ICO and was on the faculty for some years. Then he went back to the Chicago VA and he now has a large optometry clinic there with, oh, I don't know, two or three optometrists, a bunch of students and maybe three or four residents. 
The next year, I started two more residency programs, one in Boston and one at the Lexington, Kentucky VA, and then they just slowly grew. And after about, uh, after about 10 years, the schools got interested, and they started some for themselves. I see. Now, what would you say? How many residency programs are there uh, for the VA at the present time? Well, I, I got a little cheat sheet put together here so I could, I could be accurate. There, let me see here. Right, right now, there are 73 VA residency programs, and they, they have 160 residents. There are also four research fellows. Amazing, amazing. Uh, what do the uh, ophthalmologists and, and generally medicine think about uh, these optometric residency programs? Are they happy about them or, or just don't care? Well, it, in, in 1975 and 76, uh, the American Academy of Ophthalmology asked me to attend their annual meeting to explain what I was doing in the VA. And the 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 American Academy of Ophthalmology was bitterly opposed to what I was doing and made every effort to stop it. In 1978, the, the American Medical Association had a resolution introduced that, would, that called upon the VA to ban employment of optometrists and, and to not train any optometry students or residents. There was a there was a group called the PEN, the Physicians Education Network, that put out a monthly uh, newspaper that was basically a call to arms for ophthalmology to get rid of optometry in the VA system. There was letters constantly coming in to the chief medical director and headquarters, that was the top physician, calling for the VA to get rid of optometry and stop letting these optometrists experiment on their patients. It was it was really actually it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because they were so off the wall that I deliberately made certain that their newsletter went up the chain of command to the chief medical director because their claims were so false and phony that it kind of discredited them. And slowly, slowly, I began to get the support of the of the physicians in headquarters who gradually came to understand that there was a large number of patients out there that weren't getting care. There was no scientific reason why optometrists couldn't work in the VA and do a lot of good things. And there were, there were some ophthalmologists in the VA system willing to stand up and say, yes, these people are, make a useful contribution and we should, and we should have them. So slowly, slowly we became accepted today. I don't think there's any any uh, effort by medicine or ophthalmology to try to attack the VA optometry program. Great. Is there a, uh, a an ophthalmology residency program throughout the VA as well? Well, that's an interesting point that you raised, Paul. At the time I started the first residency for optometry, there were I'm gonna I don't I don't remember the exact number. But there was all the ophthalmology residents in the VA that the medical schools wanted to have. Just about every VA hospital is affiliated with a medical school, and every medical school wants to wants their ophthalmology residents to have uh, training programs. So the 
the ophthalmology residencies had been in the VA since after the Second World War. And here's the interesting point. There's the same number of ophthalmology residencies as there was back in 1974 when there were zero optometry residencies. Now we have, what was it I just told you? Uh, we have 100, 160 optometry residents, the same number of ophthalmology residents. And, and what that tells us is, is that in 1974, there were a hell of a lot of patients that needed care that didn't get it. For example, last year, the optometry clinics in the VA system saw what they saw 1.47 million patients. That means there was 1.47 million patients that would not have been seen back in 1974 because the ophthalmologists couldn't the ophthalmologists weren't even aware that they were there. You know, I'm trying to sort of reconcile in my own mind the, the rationale on the part of the ophthalmologists for not wanting these programs. I mean, you know, most ophthalmologists that I've ever known or went to school with would like nothing more than to stay in the OR all day, every day. So it would seem to me that having programs like this, they'd be very good feeder sources for patients. So I'm sort of trying to understand what the okay. opposition was way back when. Okay, Adam, that's a, that's a very important question. And that's the angle that I use to build the optometry program. The resistance against us came from the political ophthalmology, some of the chairmen of ophthalmology, some of the deans, and in the academy who were looking at it from the political point of view. You got to remember, back in those days, it was rare for an optometrist to train in a hospital, extremely rare. The only place I knew it was going on was up at New England. So when the political ophthalmologists saw my efforts to start training programs for optometry, they were bitterly opposed to it because one of their one of their claims over the years when they fought with optometry was, well, optometrists are never trained in a medical center or a hospital. So from their point of view, I was invading their holy sanctum. So the second thing, the second point you made was what allowed the program to grow because I could go to a place like Kansas City where they had more patients than they knew what to do with. And I could say to Dr. Lemoyne, look, you know from your own private practice, there's patients there that you can't get to, you can't see, you need more staff. And if you start an optometry program with me, eventually we'll get an optometrist there, we might get a student, we'll get a resident, and all of these people that aren't being seen will be seen by them and they're going to be referred. They're going to be referred to you. Your your ophthalmology resident isn't going to have to go over there and do what you think is scut work to find interesting surgical cases. We'll find them for you. And that's what happened. And the ophthalmologist in the VA became supportive of us, even though the political ophthalmologists were still against us, because they are human beings. They had more work than they knew what to do with, and by, by putting in good optometrists who could do a good job, suddenly we became their best friend. Right. Right. And the rest is history. And Ken, I'm going to ask you a, a question that may be difficult for you to answer. So we're going to go for the hard questions now, okay? Ready for this? Here's a, yep. here's, here's a hard question. So turning the topic um, a little bit, you know, there was a, a trial in, in California recently about board certification. And... You know, we've been seeing tons of evidence. You know, they finally released it to the public, so we're actually getting to see the testimonials that people gave um, at this particular trial. And one 
piece of testimony had to do with residencies. And a couple of folks who testified said that they felt that residencies were not that valuable. Um, in fact, what was sort of surprising was some of the people who testified actually ran residency programs. And they even said, well, there's not too much that you can get out of a residency that you couldn't just get out on your own out in, out in the world. So what's your take on that? And what do you feel that the, the value of a residency is in, in 2012? Well, remember I said that after about 10 years, uh, the school started to start residency programs. Okay, well, now I'm going to be very frank. There's two. There, there's a great difference in the quality of the residencies operated by the VA and the ones operated by the schools. Well, I'm old enough to know how the schools ran and still run their teaching clinics. You know, un, until 20 years ago, what 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 the school would typically do is they would take what they thought was one of their good graduates and offer them a, a, a job teaching in their in their clinic so you'd have a you'd have a new graduate working part-time or full-time in the in the in at the campus optometry clinic and usually be, be, because they weren't tenure track and they really didn't have much to say about the governance of the school they would usually burn out over two to four years and go off into private practice somewhere. It wasn't a career. Well, after about 10 years of the VA residency programs, the schools discovered that they could change the name of these new graduates to residents, but pretty much use them as they had before. And unfortunately, there's a whole different, there's a whole philosophical mindset difference between the VA, where the resident is considered a, a trainee and is constantly supervised, and the residents that operate at the schools that are basically junior faculty members. And after a lot of thought, I realized that the people that were characterizing residencies as being nothing, as being equivalent to three years of general practice somewhere without any supervision, I began to realize that they were correct because that's basically how their residents at the schools are supervised and how they operate. And the people that were making these statements had never worked in a VA hospital or never been a VA resident. But I can assure you that a resident in the VA is, is, complete, is supervised, is challenged, has to make case reports, has to go to grand rounds, and has to prepare a paper that's suitable for, for being published. It's a different mindset, and unfortunately, the people that make those statements that three years of practice doing anything somewhere is the same as a residency, that's totally inaccurate. That's, that's really an insult towards the residents. I think also where one of the issues uh, that I, I've heard from many students uh, in optometry colleges is they just don't see enough patients. There seems to be a shortage of eyeballs that they see before they graduate. Well, optometry education, Paul, is still frozen in the 1950s to a great degree. They still think that they can provide adequate training at, a, at an optometry-controlled campus clinic, and they can't do it. That's, that's the reason why the medical schools send their students and then their residents to hospitals. I'll never forget the first... The, 
the first few months I worked in the VA, I toured, I did tours of VA hospitals, and I saw all the residents in medicine and dentistry, and I saw the medical students, and I saw how they were trained, and I saw how they worked from one patient's bed to the next, and that the the large stream of patients, and I thought to myself, this is a teaching gold mine for optometry, and that's when I decided that. My goal in the VA was to open the doors for the training of optometry students. That's why I came up with the idea of residencies, because the only way to learn something is to do it. And you can't learn it by not seeing a lot of patients. I, I, to, to this day, there are students who graduate from optometry school that have never seen a fresh retinal detachment. They haven't seen a lot of things. And the problem is that most of the teaching, a large part of it, is still done at a campus clinic with a very, with basically young people. Here's what the VA is contributing right now to training of students. Last year, 1,100 students did a VA rotation. That's 1,100 out of about 1,600 students. So that means that the majority of, of optometry students serve. I guess it's a three-month rotation at a VA hospital. That's a tremendous improvement. Yeah, okay. Right. So I have one more question about residencies before we, we switch topics. Um, if I'm a young person who's just graduated and I'm thinking about doing a residency, how would I investigate doing a, a residency at a VA hospital? Well, you can you certainly at your school, every school has VA residency affiliations, just as long, they also have student affiliations. So if you're thinking about doing a residency, the first thing I would suggest you do is in your fourth year, try to try to get a rotation through a VA hospital because that's the real residency experience. Don't look at what the resident does at the school. The second thing is you can talk to the residency coordinator at the school. You can go to the ASCO site or you can go to the, go to the VA optometry service website. The VA Optometry Service website has a list of all the teaching programs uh, and, and has a list of all the optometry residency programs, the name of the optometrist in, in charge, and how to apply and uh, do all the necessary paperwork. There's also a national matching service, which first started in the VA system. Uh, to match students with VA residencies, it's now grown to include all students, whether you're seeking a VA residency or, or a different residency, and you can certainly apply to that. But the first thing I think they should do would be to go and see what a resident actually does. Uh, see if you can't take two or three days and go to the hospital and, and see what's going on there. Right. Great. All right. So... Now we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about what's going on. And, and you know, you, you do many things and let's let's completely switch gears to we'll talk about clinical medical optometry. And specifically, let's talk let, about. Let yep. me let me correct a small typo. Mm -hmm. the, the ABCMO stands for the American Board of Certification in Medical Optometry. Aha. Oh, boy. Paul, your notes oh, are I'm, useless. Oh, I'm embarrassed here. <laughs> useless. <Okay. laughs> 
<laughs> well, sorry about that typo, uh, but so 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 I guess let's let's talk about this this new board or not new, but this board that was set up. And why don't we talk about when it was established and and what it's actually all about? Well, in 1975, the first residency started in the VA, and they grew they grew very very slowly. From the very first, I wanted to mimic the medical training system. I wanted optometry to have this have advantages equal to that of the residents in ophthalmology. So I wanted them to have residency programs. The next step in the 1980s was I wanted these programs to be accredited. So I started past I started pestering what is now called the American Council on Optometric Education, the ACOE. In those days, it was just called the COE. So I started pestering them, and I said, look, this is a wonderful, valuable resource for our graduates. They can get a year's training. They're paid by the VA. They get, they get wonderful experiences. They're really challenged, and I think these deserve to be accredited programs. It'll also help me get more money from the VA to build more of them. So after a couple of years, I was able to convince the ACOE that, that they should do this because at that time, the only role the ACOE had was to accredit the schools. Well, it was slow going until I, until I pointed out to them was that, hey, the VA will pay you to do this. They didn't understand it. They thought they would have to do it out of their own budget. The VA, all their training programs are accredited, and they pay annual fees to the various accrediting bodies to, because they're not going to run training programs, residency programs are, that are not accredited. So starting about 1986 or 87, ACOE began to visit VA hospitals. They had the right standards. They didn't know anything about residencies, so it was a learning experience. But gradually over the years, they became the accrediting body for the VA optometry residency programs, and, and they are to this day. The third thing that, was, that needed to be done, the residents and the, the physicians that do residencies as well as the dentist they not only do an accredited residency program, but when they're finished, they become board certified in their specialty. Oh, after they finish their residency program, generally within a three-year period, they're required to take the board certification written exams in their particular specialty. So I thought that, that, that the residents that went through the VA system should have, that, should have an equal advantage to, to receive recognition for for, for for what they've learned. And I, I felt that, that the training they got in a hospital was, was a specialty, and the most appropriate name for that specialty was medical optometry. At that time, I was the executive director of the National Association of VA Optometrists. And after a few years, they became convinced that, that, this, that this should be done that there should be an examination prepared by the National Board of Examiners to test advanced competence in medical optometry. It took us about three or four years of lobbying to get uh, the, the National Board to agree. And in 2005, the National Board uh, rolled out the ACMO exam to test for competence in the specialty of medical optometry. 
So now that all three of these things were in place, the logical final step was to, was to create a certifying body, a specialty board, to award board certification to people that had done their residency in the VA and had passed the ACMO exam. And we began to get organized in uh, 2009. And we were, uh, we, let's see, we were, we're, it'll be three years next May. Uh, we've been in existence now a little over, uh, what would that be, about two years and three months. Right. And so this sounds to me like a much more rigorous uh, formal program, perhaps, than you know, what people are referring to as board certification on, on OD Wire these days um, with, with the sort of new board certification that's, that's popped up. Um, so I guess my, my big question would be for, for those who are listening and may not understand when someone says board certification, you know, that doesn't just mean one thing, right? So there's different kinds of board certification. Can you tell us a little bit what, what you think about board certification the American Optometric Society and the American Board of Optometry and the legal case that was going on, how that board certification differs from the program that, that you set up and, and what your feeling is about this sort of new, quote, board certification. Well, one of my disappointments has been that I thought with all these students rotating through the VA, uh, more and more general practice optometrists would understand how medicine works and how and, and how credentialing is done, how, how the credentialing of physicians and dentists and optometrists and podiatrists is done. And the, the accepted meaning of the term board certification is that it's used to recognize someone who has advanced credentials other than their professional degree and license. It's to recognize a specialist in a profession. Now, all of the board certification programs in the doctoral clinical health professions have one, have, have, have one thing in common. They all require postgraduate training in a specialty, a limited area of the profession, and they require passage of an examination testing advanced competence in that limited area, that specialty. None of the, there are 74 boards now in medicine, osteopathy, dentistry, optometry, podiatry, that award board certifications. Of those 74, that, and that includes ABCMO, every one of those 74 recognized boards require postgraduate training, a residency, and passage of a specialty exam before they can become board certified. None of those professions, medicine, osteopathy, et cetera, et cetera, None of them board certify people who are in general practice. A general practitioner is someone that holds their degree and their license. It's as simple as that. But somehow there's confusion that's been introduced in, into our profession as to what board certification means. It does not mean that you're competent in general practice of optometry. Board certification in all the other fields means that you are a specialist and you're certified to be a specialist. Right. How do you think that actually happened where the nomenclature got a little bit confused? Well, it's delivered. It, it was done deliberately because there's a, there is for the last 15 years, this obsession 
by some optometrist to be able to claim that they're board certified. It goes back to the American Board of Optometric Practice back in 1999 when the AOA, this was run solely by the AOA, came up with a board certification for people that had taken so many additional hours of CE and had passed a hundred a multiple choice question of a hundred questions. That was it. Passed the hundred question exam and have taken so many hours of CE and you are now board certified in optometry. And a lot of people protested against that. The National Board of Examiners issued a white paper saying that that was not board certification, that that was a form of maintenance of licensure. And eventually that program failed. Well, nine years after that, the same thing happened again, only this time the AOA pulled in the schools and colleges and some others, and they're attempting to again issue something they call board certification that doesn't, that isn't really board certification. And there seems to be this deep-seated feeling that somehow, because optometrists in general practice cannot say they're board certified, somehow that's going to hurt general practitioners. And I think it's total baloney. I think a false credential doesn't help anybody. Right. Now, uh, just so we clarify, if, if an optometrist would like to take the ABCMO exam, would they, can they sit for that exam if they didn't go through a VA uh, program? Okay, first of all, if anybody is interested in learning about board certification and then about ABCMO, they ought to just go to our web, website, www.abcmo.org, because there's a lot of information there about board certification, why it's, how it's used in the professions, the purpose of board certification, and explains how you can become ABCMO board certified. Now, ABCMO has had a grandfathering period of three years that ends next May. As of next May, you have to have completed an ACOE accredited residency. It does not have to be VA. It has to be accredited by ACOE. Step two, you have to have passed the ACMO exam. And step three, you have to have been in the practice and continue to practice the specialty of medical optometry. If you meet those requirements, you can apply for our certification. Now, in the first three years of our existence, we have allowed some people through career path number two who did a residency but did not take AMC, did not take the ACMO exam. If they did their residency before 2005, we don't require them to take ACMO. That path closes next May. Career path three, which also closes next May, we allowed people who had not served the residency or taken ACMO, but who believed they had acquired expertise in the specialty to petition the board and to request to be certified. And if you go to our website and you click on our constitution and bylaws, and if you go to pages 10 to 15, you'll see all the requirements to qualify through career path one, two, or three. We felt, we didn't think it was fair 
to say to a lot of mature optometrists who had worked in a in a clinical setting where they became very skilled in the specialty, we didn't think it was fair to say to them, you can never be ABCMO certified. So they've had a three-year period, which ends next May, in which they could petition to be credentialed by us. And about 10% of the people we have certified have not served their residency or taken the ACMO exam. Right. Now, just a, a little change of gears. The American Optometric Association has a division, the Accreditation Council for Optometric Education, or it's ACOE as it is known. Uh, they're responsible for setting the standards for board certification. No, 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 no. They're not. No, no. You're talking about ACOE. ACOE. No, ACOE is the accrediting body for residencies. They're not a certifying body. No, but but they are they responsible for setting the standards? Yes. For 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 all board certification. No, no, not for board certification, Paul. For ACOE is responsible for accrediting the schools and colleges of optometry and for accrediting residency programs. Ah, okay. Thanks for clearing that up. There is no over-superior body yet in our profession that decides whether or not a board certification program is legitimate or not. The only, the only, body, the only bodies now that serve to dis- determine whether a board certification is legitimate are the credentialing committees at Joint Commission Accredited Medical Facilities. Right. Right. And and, and when I say that ABCMO is a recognized specialty board, I can say that because the credentialing committees at Joint Commission accredited medical facilities recognize our board as offering a legitimate board certification. Right. I've got a question, actually. You know, I I usually don't uh, take a take a stand on many issues, at least I try not to, I try to sort of maintain a very neutral position, but the way you've described all of this, it sounds to me like if, you know, if, if I wanted to take the, you know, if, if I wanted to take your board certification exam, and now you see this new one that the that the um, uh, the ABO has come up with, it, it almost feels to me like the ABO certification cheapens the term in a way. Because it seems to me that your board certification that you're offering is much more rigorous, requires much more work, <laughs> uh, and much more devotion to actually getting you know, getting the title board certification. How do you actually feel about that? You know that that the ABO can come in and just say, you know, take this test and here you are. Well, I think the ABO is a political. Uh, it, is it, I think the ABO was created for political reasons. Uh, uh, it it is what it, there are similar non-legitimate boards, and I I do not consider a look. ABO has a lot of merit. If it, it if it is correctly named something other, it I think the profession can be proud of it. ABO is not board certification as understood within medicine and dentistry and the other professions. ABO is a form of further guaranteeing that a general practitioner is competent. It's, it's, it, it's, actually, it's actually maintenance of licensure. And it's a very, as, as, as that type of credential, 
maintenance of 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 competence in general practice it's it's a very good credential it's a better credential than medicine has medicine still requires only so many self-reported hours of ce per year to maintain your medical license i said self-reported many medical boards don't even require proof that you attend it's self-reported our existing cope program for licensure renewal is superior to, to, to very many medical boards. Now, ABO, if it, 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 if it changed its name to reflect that it was maintenance of certification, maintenance of competence in general practice optometry would be a very good document that we could all be proud of. But by calling it something it is not, by calling it board certification, it makes it look it makes it look bad. It makes our profession look bad. It makes us look like we're trying to pass ourselves off as something we're not. Sure. I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to ABO. I'm opposed to the name that they put on ABO. Again, they've also attached something that bothers me. I have. To, I, I try not to offer too many personal opinions, but as a diplomat of the contact lens section of the American Academy of Optometry, I had to work my butt off to get that diplomate. And now the a ABO uh, has the title of diplomate once they pass the exam. I don't know how it makes other uh, FAAO diplomates feel, but I know that uh, to me, it's almost a slap in the face. And why bother becoming a diplomate uh, in the academy now if, uh, if the, the title diplomate is so cheapened? Uh, that's the end of my commercial. <laughs> well, the the problem here is, in my opinion, is that the ABO credential, and and I'm going to include the ABCO here, because I I told I I I I told the attorneys in this lawsuit that I felt both of them were 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 phony uh, credentials, and that if anybody asked me, that would be my testimony. But I, I lost my train of thought here. Uh, where were we going with this? I, well, we're, we're, point, just, we're rambling. We're not going anywhere. It's okay. <laughs> well, the point I'm trying to make is if you make a good Chevrolet, and you can be proud to sell it as a Chevrolet, but if you put put the name Cadillac on it, you're being dishonest. And I think we could be proud of the ABO, deservedly, if it was correctly named. I, there's no other profession that has as rigorous a process for those for its general practitioners to ensure that they're competent compared to the ABO. Right. But when you call it something it is not, when you try to pass yourself off as being a board-certified specialist, and when you go to the extreme as the, the witnesses for the, for, the, for the ABO, here's a statement that, that people in medicine that knows anything will laugh at. The witnesses for the ABO claimed that the ABO credential no, it's even worse than that. They claim that a licensed optometrist was the equivalent of a board-certified physician. Really? Huh. Yeah, you read the testimony. Uh, several of the deans and one of the presidents made that statement. And the problem here is they're trying to make it look like ABO is really board certification because if, if you've done a residency in any anything, doesn't matter, whatever it is, they will they will waive their requirement for doing what is it 150 hours of CE or something, right? Yeah. Well, they keep trying to give the impression that 
because they're just starting up, sooner or later they're going to require everybody to do a residency for their board certification. Well, that's baloney. Someone asked them during the trial, how many of your candidates to ABO have done a residency? They, they asked Dr. Weaver, their executive director of the ABO. He could not give an answer. I would I would guess it's a very tiny percentage of people that have ever done a residency have applied for their credential because if they've done a residency, they understand what board certification means. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, well, you know, we're getting to getting to the end of our uh, of our time here, but I just have one more question. If you sort of put, you know, get out the crystal ball and we'll sort of look forward. What do you think the upshot's going to be with the whole board certification fight now that the, the trial is over? Where do you think everything is going to go from here? Well, the legal basis to practice our profession is your degree and your license. And until some entity changes that so that they can require there must be an additional credential, I don't think there's going to be a a large number of optometrists seeking either the ABO or the ABCO credential because it's not needed. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that, that, that somebody might convince a panel somewhere to, to require one of those credentials, and then you're going to force optometrists to pursue these meaningless credentials, and then you're going to end up just placing a burden on the poor guy in general practice trying to make ends meet because it's not going to give them any competitive advantage. That's the irony of this, of this darn lawsuit that just went down. To defend itself, ABO had to argue to the judge that their credential was essentially of no value. Here, here, here was the quandary. To win the lawsuit, the AOS had to prove three things. They had to prove that the ABO credential was, was, was falsely labeled. And they had to prove that AOS members who were not ABO certified had been damaged by ABO certified optometrists. And they, there was a third point they had uh, they had to they, uh, there was a third point they had to prove, uh, and AOS could not prove points number two or three. So the judge never got around to ruling on whether or not ABO was legitimate or not. The judge simply said, "Look, in my opinion." from the testimony from the ABO and also from my testimony, the credential offers no competitive advantage. So there's no harm being done to the non-ABO optometrist. So I'm not going to bar them from calling their credential whatever they want to call it. That was basically the, the ABO's argument, which is, and the irony is that when they started out, when ABO started out, they were making a great, a great amount of fuss over the fact that their credential indicated that one was superior, that one was above the crowd, that one could be proud of being board certified. To defend their right to use that term, they had to then reverse themselves and argue to the court that no, our credential means doesn't really mean anything. It just means what we mean it to mean. Doesn't this open them up, though, for any organization who wanted to, to just set up their own board certification? If we have ODY board certification, take a five-minute survey, and here's a certificate, and there you go. <laughs> well, that, that's pretty much what the judge said, because the judge said, look, there's the, there's the American Academy, there's the ABCMO, 
there's the A, the A, B O, and there's the A B C O. And in fact, he he once said, "I've never run into a profession with so many different acronyms and groups." <laughs> and, and he and and what he said was, "Look, if anybody feels threatened by ABO, they can go get one of these other credentials." Right, and he was a very wise judge because now everybody claims victory. <laughs> Whoever, well, the winners, the losers, everyone wins. So yeah. <laughs> I guess all all's well that ends well. <laughs> All right, Ken. Well, we have to wrap it up here. It's been a great interview, though. Thanks so much for, uh, for your insight. Do you have any parting words for Well, I, I hope people understand that what we're trying to do with the ABCMO is to develop a traditional career path for optometrists that want to be specialists in medical optometry. It's the same thing that's happened in medicine and dentistry and podiatry. It's nothing new. It's a well-accepted pattern. The hallmarks of of becoming a specialist in all these professions is to do a residency, pass a specialty exam, and become a board certified specialist. We're not trying to change the profession of optometry. At, at, I think that we'll probably continue to see about 18% of graduates serve residencies. The majority of those are, are in medical optometry, but in the future, the most I would think would happen for the specialty would be that about 10% of optometrists would become specialists in medical optometry. Uh, to be a specialty, you have to be a minority profession. I mean, you have to be a small part of your profession. And all we're trying to do with ABCMO is to give proper recognition to optometrists that have sought to become a specialist, have done a residency, and passed the ACMO exam. I think they deserve that recognition. I think the fact that we've got this specialty now shows that our profession has matured. Our scope of practice has become broad enough that we can have specialties. I don't think anybody now can be proficient in all areas of optometry, even though they used to be able to do that 30, 40 years ago. So I think it's a natural development for our profession. We're the last one to do it because we're the youngest. And we've had the big struggle against the state scope of practice bills. Once we've done that, I think it's natural that we have specialties and that medical optometry happens to be the first one to have gotten this far down the road. Great. Okay, well, thanks so much, Ken. And it was a great explanation. And if anyone has any questions for Ken, you can obviously come right on back to ODWire and the conversation will continue. So, Ken, thanks so much. Thank you, Ken.